I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Grapes in Barolo have a foggy history, both literally and figuratively. The hints of winemaking in this region are as early as 1266, when the word nibiol appears on record, etymologically linked to a root word meaning fog. And it's certain that Nebbiolo was popular in the Lange at least by the 1430s, and probably much earlier. In 1431, Nebbiolo was so important that a statute noted that cutting down a Nebbiolo vine would dock you a high monetary fine. In Barolo, the soil is layers of marine sediments that present today as chalk, clay, and sandstone. To generalize, you'll find mostly sandstone in the Saralunga Valley in the south and east, and more clay in the Mora to the northwest. In Saralunga de Alba, you'll find the oldest soil formations, and coincidentally, the wines from this subregion tend to better handle more age. The wines from the younger soils tend to drink better younger. Though, of course, there are always plenty of exceptions. Some of the early references to Nebbiolo are from Thomas Jefferson. When he first tried Nebbiolo, he described it as about as sweet as the silky Madeira, as astringent on the palate as Bordeaux, and as brisk as champagne. It is a pleasing wine. And there's another famous Jefferson Nebbiolo quote from a letter that is often paraphrased. Most references to this quote indicate that Nebbiolo in Jefferson's time was sparkling. But if you go back to the original quote, it seems that Thomas Jefferson is actually politely complaining to a friend who had brokered the sale. As I interpret the quote, his complaint is that one of the bottles was re-fermenting. He wrote, The single bottle of the 200 had probably been bottled too new, it had nothing of the Nebbiolo character, but it's sparkling. It had the excessive sweetness of new wine. I mention this to you because I know you were so kind as to pass on these parcels to me. Thus, some references to Jefferson's sparkling Nebbiolo may be misinterpretations of this quote. But in the 1800s, there definitely may have been a little sweetness to the wines in general. Medals given to Barolos in the 1873 Global Exhibition indicated both a Barolo and a Barolo Secco. 
so a movement toward dry winemaking was underway by this time. Wine fraud was also underway. In the mid-1800s, Barolo wines were being copied, and lesser wines were sold under the prestigious name. Local government initiatives to secure the prestige of the name began to foment. Vineyards were formatted differently in the 1800s and very early 1900s. They were usually interplanted with crops. Vine rows were spaced far apart, and the harvests of the various crops followed a schedule. First, you'd harvest the wheat between the vines, then you'd do any necessary grape treatments, and then you'd harvest the grapes for the wine. Some older growers today who remember the old polyagricultural layouts recall that some of the vines suffer today because the soil gets compacted now that the wheat isn't harvested and tilled regularly between the vine rows. Like so many regions, in the 1930s, phylloxera devastated the area. It had hit before, but the 30s outbreak was the catalyst for major change in grafting. As vineyards died, replanting vineyards on American rootstock and switching over to monocultural vineyards took place. Then in the 1930s, winemaking became difficult, but for political reasons. German soldiers would pass through and pillage wine. Maria Chiavesa describes her encounter with German soldiers in the book A Wine Atlas of the Lange. They started drinking the wine, and then, drunk and angry, they began to loose off gunfire everywhere. As they raged through the town, they found the wine in the cellar. They arrived in the courtyard with their lorries and started loading up as much wine as they could. I could see them from the window of my room, and I thought to myself, I can't just stand here. What would I say to my husband? That I watched and did nothing? So I went out in slippers to speak to the captain, who had an interpreter with him. I told him it was my wine, not the partisans. My intervention was totally fruitless. And since they couldn't carry all the wine away, they came back the following Monday. They came up to our cellar, and I tried to humor them, but they wanted to clean out the cellar where our wine was. And in fact, they carried off every single bottle. It took decades to rebuild after World War II. But from the 1960s through the present, Barolo has been an incredibly interesting wine region to keep an eye on. It's a place where winemaking techniques are scrutinized more so than other wine regions. And consumers attempt to group the different Barolos into very general styles. It's a region where, despite our constant attempts to pigeonhole these wines, they seem to have an immortality to them. Barolo is an interesting area, too, in the context of climate change. There are a few other regions that exist at the limit of where wine can be grown. And in marginal climates, specifically cold, wet, or foggy marginal climates in Europe, and with the warmer temperatures in the last 12 years or so, all of these usually difficult climates primarily Champagne, the Mosul, and Barolo, have had a string of really nice vintages. Will warmer temperatures continue to help vintages in the future? Or will it change the ultimate character of the Barolo we know today? Will it give a boost to some of the other popular grapes grown in the area? Keep listening to hear more Barolo insights. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country 
and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O F F S E T partners with an S.com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Luca Corrado Vietti of Vietti in Castiglione Folletto. Hello, sir. How are you? Ciao. Very well. Thank you. Very nice to have you here. Thank, me too. I'm very excited. A little bit uh, yeah, excited, happy and excited. Well, you look good. <laughs> so you, your cellar, part of it actually dates back to the 1600s. The cellar is uh, all under the, this uh, huge village of Castiglione Falletto that is uh, 500 people, 20 dogs and 30 cats. And uh, oh yeah, this, that's the village. This is the village. We know all that's, each other. That's not just you. No, no. I'm uh, sometimes uh, more cat, sometimes more dog. Depends. No, it is uh, very nice because the people when they arrive, uh, uh, you know, in my yard, in my from the gate, they they never expect. Let's say it's more similar to a Burgundian style winery because there are all these tunnel, these layer, many many steps. Uh, uh, you know when. Uh, Years ago, I, I thought that it was a, a limit because uh, many levels, many stairs uh, uh, was a problem. Then uh, it helped me a lot because uh, I can work uh, more as a gravity, and, but more important, I can eat more because I do a lot of steps during the day. <laughs> no, it's they, important with the pasta. Uh, so good. See, too much wine, too many wine dinner. And, uh, I, I, I love too much food, unfortunately, or fortunately. No, yeah, the, the first part of the winery was built by my my family uh, between the 1600-1700. But honestly, we don't know the exact period because it was so long, long, long time ago. And uh, we based our founding uh, uh, when we found the first label of uh, the family, that is uh, 1873. Because uh, as you know, in, in Italy, also in France, I think... Uh, the fashion of selling the wine by bottle only started uh, in the second part of the 1800. Before, uh, the wineries to sell the wine by barrel to family or to tavern, and the people they use to bottle and their own. So this is the reason why. Or probably because the generation before mine, they had a lot of fun and they drank all the good wine before. Who knows? <laughs> but you go deep into a cellar like that, I mean, it must seem like a different time. It's incredible because... Uh, but working in all this tunnel, all this layer, uh, you sometimes really you feel the history briefing from the wall, you know. Plus, this was uh, one of the cellars that uh, during the French occupation, uh, we, we say invasion, they say occupation, <laughs> during the, anyway, different point of view, uh, the general Segur <laughs> was, uh, uh, there was the general of the French army. He was making the wine for the French army here. So Napoleone was in Carrasco, 
and Cassione Falletto and Serra Lunga, they were two military based. And General Segur, that was the owner of Chateau Canon Segur, Chateau Felan Segur, and also Chateau Lafitte. We still have the battling machine, some uh, big battle, the Napoleon battle is uh, funny. So yes, there is a, the wall brief, a little bit of history. The estate, the holdings, have gone through different changes over time. They were big, and then they got small, and they got big again. I mean, what was the history there? Family became uh, winery, as we know, as we consider a winery, only in the second part of the 1800, probably when we founded this first label, because before the family was uh, making wine, but then he had field, cows, many other activity. Only in this period, he became uh, exclusively uh, winery. The main business, the main income of the family was the wine. Probably also because it uh, was a period when uh, in the family, from one side of the family, there was uh, uh, two brothers, uh, my great-grandfather and his oldest brother. And uh, the oldest brother, as uh, the typical Italian family, was in charge. Uh, he, he was the one that has to continue the family business. Then uh, the second one in Italy, if the family can, maybe could study. The, the third one always must be a priest. This is the reason why there are a lot of priests. <laughs> no, I'm the third one, but thanks God I have two older sisters. So, and then I'm too far away to be a priest. Uh, so it was no work for him and uh, for his family. He became an engineer at the University of Torino and he left, as many Italians, to look for fortune. And he ends up in um, Boston, in uh, Massachusetts. And he lived there for 35 uh, more Many, many years. My grandmother, she was born in Quincy, Massachusetts. <laughs> See, it's a very funny story. Right? Incredible. And uh, then uh, during the First World War, the end of the First World War, the brother that was in Italy, that he was not married, he didn't have the kids, uh, um, died uh, during the war. Uh, so all the family from America came back to Italy. So it's very, very strange, the... The, the life, you know, uh, who knows if we've been lucky or not, you know, but anyway, it was when my great-grandfather came back to the family, he did so many crazy things that uh, today are the base, the fundamental, the roots of our wine. He replanted Barbera Scarrone Vigna Vecchia in 1918, because when he left Italy, it was very funny. Left Italy, Barbera was very popular. It was the real wine, because the noble people, they were drinking... Uh, Barolo and the real people they were drinking Barbera also because Barbera was the real wine for the food and uh, till today for me the best wine to do food pairing and when uh, he came back uh, his brother used uh, already all the good vineyards of Barbera planted uh, in the Barolo region uh, to make more Barolo for sure for economically reason and when he came back uh, he said uh, on the terrace you remember terrace of uh, the, the winery and he said, wow, porca miseria, there is no more good uh, Barbera. So he planted uh, two acres. We always kept as a respect. So he's, uh, this was one. Or uh, another funny thing was that uh, when he came back, uh, this was my grandmother who told me this story because uh, for sure I never met him. And unfortunately, I also never met my grandfather. When uh, he, he came back, uh, he really had in his mind uh, to do from the 80s something special. And uh, 
he was a farmer because he, he was a farmer, but he was an engineer, uh, he, he traveled to America, he, he had incredible experience, you know. Actually, was probably one of the only Italian that went to America and he came back with less money than what he had before. <laughs> anyway, uh, so without too much for fortune, but uh, he had a very open mind. And uh, he understood that if he wants uh, to do something special from the winery, he had to source the grape from uh, the best uh, spot, the best vineyard. And uh, uh, he said he was calling this the good, good vineyard, the vineyard that today we call Grand Cru <laughs> of, uh, in our region. This was a crazy thing because uh, in the old time, uh, if I take a, a winery old as my family, as a Rinaldi or Mascarello in Barolo, they make all their beautiful wine. They come from uh, Barolo village for logistical reason, because in the old time there were no tractor and, and uh, all the work they were done with cow and horses. So you want to have the vineyard uh, there, close, because it was easier to work. Or Marcarini, La Morra, Brunate, La Serra, or the Conterno family in Monforte. So well, this was uh, the way how the winery tried to have their vineyard. And so he was going from Castiglione to Serralunga to Monforte because uh, he decided instead to have one piece of land altogether, where maybe you have a good corner and less good part, to cherry pick, you know, to cherry pick the best uh, spot all around the Barolo region, trying to do something different. And uh, in my region, we give uh, a nickname to the people. And uh, his nickname, uh, funny, this maybe will be very funny for you, they call him uh, the crazy Americano, because the people didn't understood why this stupid guy was going with his horses and cows, uh, wasting all this time going around. Uh, thanks to him, today we have a uh, you know, a collection of crew that is very important. Um, we lost uh, during some period, we get back uh, in Italy, in Europe, uh, in France, in all the Europe. Not many people, sometimes when you drink wine, uh, remember that we had two world war. And it was dramatic. The first world war in uh, uh, my village, they lost uh, basically one generation, was gone. You know, from uh, people from 16 to 25 uh, was almost disappeared, dead, died on uh, in the war. Uh, so big drama, you can imagine. You know, the reason why my family had to come back from America to here. And then uh, during the Second World War uh, was another uh, huge uh, moment, terrible moment. And it really was very bad for my family because uh, during the second part, during the the occupation, the, the German occupation, when uh, the, it was the re Republican time in, in Italy, let's say, uh, when, let's say, the Italian, they were no more good friends with the German after. Uh, but uh, so there were a lot of partisans, I think what you say, fighters, uh, for sure. the, they tried to make our land free from the occupation of uh, the German, you know, and all was related to, you can imagine, all the drama of everything. Actually, Alba uh, was a, a village that was able to get free before that the Allied arrived. They are called the Republic of the 44 Days. Because for 44 days, uh, Alba was uh, free by the, uh, himself, by the partisan. They fight against uh, the fascists and the Germans, they were there. But then uh, the drama came back uh, because uh, after 44 days, uh, 
la quarta armata, fourth army of Germany came and uh, they I don't know if many people they know what means decimazione. Decimazione is a Roman word that means uh, one every ten. And they killed uh, in all the village one every ten. So this is the reason why for long, long, an example to Bartolo Mascarello, I remember for many, many years, he didn't want to sell his wine to, to the German because he was leaving that time. And, you know, it was really a terrible moment. For sure, the German today do not have anything to, to share with this, but it was a war. And for the drama for my family, beside this, absolutely, but nobody died, fortunately. But... Uh, there, is a, there was a dark side uh, in the family because uh, there were uh, two brothers and sisters. Uh, Mario, my grandfather, he was uh, supporting uh, the partisan. He was a partisan himself. Uh, he was uh, helping the people, uh, uh, hiding from the Germans and so on. And uh, his sister, unfortunately, uh, he had the bad idea to marry in Torino one of the top uh, fascists. So it was uh, really one of the highest. Uh, and uh, you can imagine in a family, uh, the two things, they couldn't go together. You know, like I said, it was like a, a vinegar uh, and oil, you know, the opposite. Not a lot of good Easter dinners together. No, <laughs> no not very much. I don't think so. They never get together. <laughs> it was really. Uh, and so when... Uh, is a husband of his sister, his brother-in-law. They reported to him that his brother-in-law was doing this. Was uh, you know, he came to the winery, and uh, he said to my grandfather, "You know, for respect of your sister, I'm not going to kill you." Uh, this also was always the story that my grandmother told to me. And I remember she was uh, always uh, uh, crying at the end of the story because you can imagine family drama. And he said, you know, I'm not going to kill you because uh, you are the, my, but uh, uh, I give you a few months to sell all your property. If you do not sell all your land, and you can imagine for a farmer to be forced to sell uh, your land is the, is the worst thing that can happen. Uh, if you don't sell everything, I will come here in a few months. I remember what he said, six months, eight months, or two months. Uh, I will uh, steal everything. And I will... Uh, so he, my grandmother told me that, you know, they rushed, they sold everything. Uh, some part they were bought by some uh, their winery. The biggest part uh, was sold to the church. That church is always good when uh, they had to make a very good deal. Uh, the, and my grandmother, uh, she was saying that uh, with the money that they sold everything, all the land, not the winery, they were only able to buy two cows. <laughs> Incredible. Ah, minchia was a uh, to start again from scratch. But uh, I think... Uh, the goal of uh, our family, in always in all our generation, was trying to buy back all the vineyard that we've been forced uh, to sell. In Italy, Piemontese people are considered very stubborn people, you know, very testoni, you know, testardi, very determined. And they think uh, we we could consider ourselves good Piemontesi, because little by little, uh, in all the generation, him. Uh, 
he did a lot. He bought back a lot of vineyard, many good other family in the village in the region. They also been partisan. They really, you know, they resold at the same price. Uh, the one to the church was much more difficult because, uh, for sure, uh, my grandfather was a little bit more on, on the left side of the church. <laughs> that was not easy. Uh, so we almost got uh, all the the vineyard, almost, not not all. But uh, we was uh, some secret that made us strong, determined, and proud. You know this. I always tell this story to my kids because uh, I think uh, I never lived. Thanks God, and I hope I will never leave a war. <laughs> uh, but the, I hope also for them. But uh, these tell how the human beings and the family, when uh, something happens, must be strong and determined. Is that why when your kids go to church, they start yelling at the priest? Like, you, <laughs> you have our vineyard. <laughs> this wine is from Our vineyard. Is there, yes. <laughs> uh, it's cause it's, Italy is like this. You know, there is the good and the bad. Uh, there are uh, the the power of the church uh, is very important. Absolutely, you know, is uh, oh, then depends. That that, that was uh, probably I don't know uh, that specific priest uh, that it was like this. Uh, I don't know. You've forgiven him. Say, he's okay. Now we are happy. We have uh, almost everything back, uh, even more crew that we didn't have before. Uh, so he's, uh, but, you know, I always have a goosebump thinking about that because I always have uh, in front of me every time the face uh, of my nonna Pierina, my grandmother, that uh, lived the drama and, uh, was um, unbelievable, you know, to listen the story from her mouth. What else did she tell you about the old days? I loved her because also we are farmer and my family was a farmer. Uh, my father and my mother, they never had too much time to dedicate to me, you know, because also I was the third kids, you know, so they were all too old, the sister older than me. And my grandmother, basically, she raised me, you know, she, she was my first mother or second mother, uh, not because my parents didn't want her, but because they had to work in the vineyard, traveling, making the wine. And uh, she, she was uh, fantastic. I think uh, one of the stories that I like very much related to the wine uh, was that in the early 90s, when uh, I started uh, and to help my family to do some uh, traveling or promotion after working in the vineyard, I remember I was uh, coming home always very sad because uh, we have uh, to put ourselves in that moment. In that moment, uh, uh, there was a lot of big uh, contrast uh, between uh, more traditional producer and more modern producer. I think, uh, you know, many of you probably saw the movie also, Barolo Boys. Uh, it was the moment where, uh, you know, a lot of uh, very, very good growers that now they make fantastic wine. They used to sell the grape uh, to big winery like uh, Fontana Freda or Marchesi di Barolo that was called at the time uh, differently, uh, Pio Cesare and so, big estate. And uh, they realized, say, wow, we have this great vineyard, why we don't make some wine? And uh, they uh, understood that, uh, you know, if they wanted to become uh, famous, they had to work uh, better in the vineyard. And this was great electricity for the region because it gave a lot of energy to the region. Also, some traditional winery, honestly, like my family or Rinaldi or Mascarello, they had more competition, you know, so they had to work better in the vineyard. But uh, 
you know, their philosophy was a little bit more to make more modern style Barolo, you know, more uh, darker Barolo, more fruity, more uh, drinkable younger, more oaky. And uh, it was not easy time because it was a huge, huge uh, contrast in this moment against. Uh, and uh, honestly, it was a moment of uh, my life uh, that uh, I still have uh, some, uh, something always on my stomach, eternally, because it was not always a very polite uh, moment, you know. And it was really, I remember uh, one time, uh, one producer that he made an interview to the canter, I think so, and he said that uh, making a traditional wine is an excuse to make wine that stink. And you can imagine when you, I was younger in the family and my father for me was an hero, as uh, was a hero in the way making uh, Mascarello or Rinaldi. And listen, this story make you not feel comfortable, you know. And uh, so it was really big uh, conflict. But I was uh, proud, you know, to do of what my family did uh, for many generations. And going around to the world presenting wine, uh, for sure that was a style that... Uh, I still, I still love some very modern Barolo, eh? please, eh? because there are some great producers of Barolo, they make fantastic wine. But it was different than what we were making, much more darker in color, much more easy. Our wine was lighter in color, tannic, uh, difficult at the beginning. Uh, and so many times when I was pouring the wine to sommelier or, or wine store, ah, why, you know, uh, why is this so light? Why so... And I received so many uh, door on my nose, you know. Uh, we we forgot this because, but this was was like this. And so, because I was going home, uh, sad, uh, not too many sales. Uh, 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 I, I remember it was a moment uh, uh, here in New York. We were working with uh, Lauber, and Lauber was uh, representing us and Monfortino, Roberto Conterno, and they were doing close out of Monfortino, I remember. And they were, all Bartolo Mascarella, I remember close out in California that I had a friend that he bought all what was available. You know, you can imagine a close out right now on this wine, it's crazy. But it was like this. Because people didn't buy. And going home, my grandmother, I, when I sit on the sofa, my grandmother arrives and says, Luca, what's going on? Why you are not happy? So, tell the story, you know. And she said to me once again, Thought it was fantastic, and uh, I didn't immediately understood because you know you take sometimes this word of these older people like okay. You know. She said to me, "Luca, don't worry, relax. You do not have to follow the fashion. Fashion means uh, five seconds. At six, you are old. Do what you are able to do with respect of the history, your vineyard, uh, your work, and don't worry." And uh, then thinking and thinking, you know, she was right. You know, anyway, when you make a wine that you pretend that age longer than you, or you want that age longer than you, as a Barolo, as great Burgundy, as the great wine of the world, you know, I think looking the small window of uh, the today is an error. So if you trust uh, that uh, your vineyard must be a modern style Barolo, do it. Because uh, you need to trust it. If you trust uh, that your vineyard or your interpretation of your terroir must be terroir, you must do it. Not just uh, 
going around from one side to the other like a banderole because that is could be dangerous. Honestly, for me, when I was that moment, I was also very young. And then, you know, when you have a lot of energy, you want you think that you are able to change the world, you know, and uh, then you, you do not, uh, uh, you understand that your world then is your vineyard and then you have to do what you are able to do. And then for sure, in the frame time, I learn every day from every vintage, you know, uh, uh, Ravera, that was a wine that I, I made, uh, I made in the 2000. And then uh, when uh, I went through 10 years of uh, experiment, <laughs> no, one year, ten, 10 years is a lot of time in the wine industry is nothing in the vineyard. In, in other business, uh, they build a fortune in 10 years, you know, but uh, you know, you, we have one shot a year, one harvest a year. So. You try and you experiment and you need to be sure of what you do. So your dad was Alfredo Corrado? My father, yes, Alfredo. And what was he like? Uh, he was a very, very severe person, you know, very, you know, like a really old, old, was not very old, but was a farmer with big hands, uh, big man, uh, probably because I was little, I was looking him as big, you know, but he was a person that for me was a, Always, I always thought that he was able to move a mountain from his power, his energy. And uh, he had huge love of wine. I think, uh, honestly, I think if you want to make wine, if you want to be a winemaker, you need to love wine before to make it. Because if not, you don't do anything. And uh, he married uh, my mother. The story was, uh, <laughs> it was funny because... Uh, he was a winemaker, he was an ologist in Alba, but he was making, in Canelli, he was making sparkling uh, wine at the time because uh, people should remember that Canelli at the time was one of the largest uh, wine region and they were making the biggest production of Metodo Classico, much, much more than Francia Court. Eh? Then unfortunately everything uh, destroyed because uh, disappeared, you know, probably became too uh, industrialized, you know. So... My father was always saying, you know, uh, that uh, my family, the family of my mother, she was looking for uh, a winemaker, but they couldn't afford to pay. So my mother married him. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, you know, they, he worked for a few years uh, in Canelli. He worked even in a winery of very dear friends, uh, Coppo, that they produce Barbera. They work even there uh, in the old, old time. Then uh, when uh, my grandfather passed away in a very, very early in 61, in the spring of uh, 61, I think so. My father had to come up to the winery, really 100%. Immediately. Uh, had immediately. To come. And, uh, you know, to follow the business, you know. So that seems like a big change. Uh, see, and also because, uh, you know, again, we are very proud and we are very egocentric sometimes also in the farmer the winemaker the, the winemaker the winemaker is a big word but we own a winery and we think that we are the uh, number one so it's difficult to let other people doing something in your garden you know and i think for my father and my grandfather it was like this also so when he passed away he arrived there and he immediately put his energy and his philosophy unbelievable you know so an example 61 my father you know this is always the story the first the second the third i don't know but uh, let's say one of the first uh, at least from what we know one of the first label person 
to battle a single vineyard crew, Barolo, because the tradition in the old time eh, was not to make a single vineyard crew vinification. Today, the map of Barolo is so colorful with all these beautiful 152 appellations. But in the old time, eh, the top Barolo was uh, like uh, still today Bartolo Mascarello that uh, used to blend the vineyard. The blend of the best vineyard was the top Barolo. The blend of the other vineyard was the regular Barolo. And, uh, you know, to take the best from different personality of vineyard. So my father, that he loved Burgundy, and uh, understood, anyway, the potentiality of uh, the single vineyard crew vinification, in 61 did the first vinification of Barolo Rocche. It was the same year that Beppe Colla in Prunotto, Prunotto now is owned by Antinori, but before was the family Colla, that uh, made the Bussia. So uh, it was uh, last year uh, was very emotional for us because uh, with the 2011 was the 50th anniversary for uh, for this wine and uh, we we are very close to the my father for thanks to this. So I know that you weren't around at the time, but did your family tell you what the reception was to the Roque when it was released? We spoke a lot uh, with my mother uh, with uh, regarding this and. Uh, my mother said uh, that was not very well welcome. <laughs> no, actually, she had a lot of resistance, mainly from the people in the village, mainly from the other wineries. My mother always tells the story that uh, there was uh, this uh, very uh, director of this cooperative uh, that was also the mayor of the village of Castiglione Falletto, that he, one time he went to the house and he said, no, you cannot do this. You are... Uh, changing the tradition, you, why you wanted to do this? Uh, so was not very well welcome. I think uh, probably the first one that really uh, welcome uh, was uh, Veronelli, that uh, was uh, one of the most important uh, person in the wine industry, that not many people always give the importance to him, but he was uh, amazing. He, he loved it and he encouraged my father and my father so little by little started uh, he did also first Barbaresco, then little by little other vineyards. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was uh, really because, uh, you know, he loved the wine and he always saw as Burgundy as uh, the point of arriving of everything. And so he, he thought that was possible to do the same. So why do you think he chose Roque to do it? I'm not supposed to say this because uh, he's a, uh, but uh, he's always a piece of uh, heart in our uh, uh, heart for Roque Vineyard. And my father was always saying that uh, Roque was his vineyard. His one, probably because it was also the first one that he made as a single vineyard crew. For sure, because he's a fantastic vineyard, because uh, the quality that vineyard released uh, is incredible. Also, because he's the most uh, challenging. It's the most challenging to work, vineyard, because it's one of the more steep vineyards. Many work you cannot do uh, with a tractor. Uh, you have to do all by hand. In the springtime, uh, when it rains, uh, you cannot go with a tractor to spray the copper sulfate. You need to go, you know, on your shoulder. And uh, last year we went on our shoulder there uh, with the machine to spray the copper sulfate. Uh, it's a vineyard that in the summertime, if you forgot the, something at the bottom of the vineyard and you arrive at the top, you say, okay, I don't go there or back. To, I leave there, I go maybe tomorrow. That's how you lost that car that one time, right? You left it at the bottom. You're like, yeah, it's, it's only a Fiat. So, Let's leave okay. there. <laughs> if it was a Lamborghini, I'd go back. But uh, 
No. It's, a, it's a Lancia. It's fine. No, the so very difficult to work, very difficult to interpret also during the fermentation, because uh, Brunate, an example that I like and I love the elegance of Which Brunate. Which also make. Uh, it's fantastic, you know. And uh, But from the beginning, you know that it's going to be good wine. At the beginning, when you crush the grape, you already know. Roque is so reserved, so difficult. The tanning, they always takes time to get together. You never know when it's time to press the wine because the tanning, they always go up and down. But uh, when everything gets together, for me, it's like a masterpiece. You know, it's a fantastic. It's the one that gives you really more satisfaction to do. Do you find that Roque shows the vintage more than some of the other crews? See, si. you know, Brunate being the most uh, elegant, the most beauty, is also the one that the tanning are more ripe sooner, is always very sexy. It's the most sexy. It's like a woman with a big breast, you know, Brunate for me. Lazzarito uh, is uh, always uh, a kind of block because Serra Lunga always uh, mentioned the crew that I make. Uh, then, uh, you know, there are so many others that everybody has his own experience. Lazzarito is, uh, for me, is like the most uh, South Coduron wine. Always this spiciness, uh, this uh, black pepper, uh, but always a very tannic and rich, like all the Serra Lunga wine, if you, if you think about it. Uh, Roque also, he doesn't have uh, one of the best exposure because he's really go from southeast, some part to east. And uh, so, really, is where it uh, needs really the best uh, condition. And also the tanning, they need to ripe very well there uh, because uh, it needs to be a good season to make the tanning ripe very well. And uh, so, he's uh, probably, yes, he's the one that uh, signs more the, the vintages. So your father was also known as an innovator in the winery. He did things. See. In vinification, absolutely, because uh, he was one of the first uh, to introduce uh, stainless steel. in the For fermenting. For fermenting. One thing very interesting is this, that uh, the original piece of fermentation in our region was not the Bordeaux style tonneau. Uh, the original piece of fermentation, and we had, and I was helping my father, was like the botti, the cask. And these botti, they had in the top a door, like the one that normally you see on the front uh, in wood. In the top, you remove, you put the grape inside, and you were doing the punch down, and then you the remontage, the pumping over, and everything. And then also, the botti was the right shape to make the steccatura, the submerge the cup, because it's a... It's not flat, but it's, uh, you know, oval or round, so the, the profile go down. So they used to put stick inside, stecke, wooden, piece of wood, wooden yeah. stick, hold down the cap. hold down the cap and submerge the, the cap. And then uh, after the fermentation, today we have the luxury, every winery to have uh, the fermenting room, uh, the barrel room. Uh, but in the old time, uh, when they didn't have money to pay the electricity and they had to count every single penny, because today we live in a luxury moment of winemaking, but the time was not like this. Eh? You chose uh, the right time, I guess. <laughs> See, so maybe the next generation, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, uh, they reuse for uh, the aging. You know, they close upstairs and they put again the wine and they aged the wine. Then arrived the tonneau after, but this was already looks 
to have because uh, the people, they use only the tonneau for fermentation. The aging was always the body. And also, as you know, it's not very easy to steccare, you know, to do submerge the cup in a tonneau that is uh, wide and large. Uh, they use a different system that they invented, uh, but uh, naturally it was on the bottom that is uh, oval. Uh, so is that why people might have done like grates on top? See, see, uh, okay. yes. As it opposed was, to steaks. Exactly. But it was uh, adapting these. So my father, we went from the body to the stainless steel. We never uh, lived at that stage uh, because my father was an enologist, technique, and he said, oh, he, was, uh, he wanted to have the winery clean. Uh, he wanted maybe have the possibility to temperature control the wine because it was a big problem in the past. So stainless steel was perfect of this. But instead uh, to buy cask, uh, uh, of stainless steel, uh, large and uh, short. He bought uh, short and tall with the hole in top very, very high so he could uh, submerge the cup. Let's say he tried to, he couldn't build uh, a stainless steel cask uh, in uh, oval or round as a body uh, because uh, it was not possible. So uh, the closest shape to that was like a, like more a tube. It's know? like a smokestack almost. See, 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 see. And when you submerge the cap, it's like a French press uh, oh, yeah. coffee. You know, yeah, sure. Do you still do that? Absolutely. It's our uh, base of our, uh, all the crew. He invented this kind of stainless steel screen to put inside to push down the cap in the cask for the capel submerso, for the submerge the cap. Then after... The Tine, that was an experiment that my father did uh, with the uh, French winery, but also with Diamond Creek, uh, Al Brunstein, that was dear friends of him. They created this idea of uh, doing the piston to do plunging down. Did you ever meet Al? Si, si, si. Yeah, si. what was he like? Era uh, squisito. And uh, my father uh, loved him. And, uh, and the crazy story, they both uh, they died uh, of uh, Parkinson. They were uh, incredible. They... So... After that, they said, okay, let's try to do the tine because there are many people that were doing this tonneau, no, big tonneau. I think it's, tine is correct, tonneau in English, like to ferment, uh, like the Bordeaux style. Yeah, open top. Open top, uh, fermenter, large. And so he, instead of to do the plunging down, he invented uh, this assistant, this piston, this pneumatic uh, piston. We did. It was the first period that also I was in the, helping him in the winery. I was finished the enological school. Oh, what was that? Like the 80s? Late 80s? Uh, 87. was 86, 87, if I remember well. You decided you wanted to do wine. <laughs> See, I think we are genetically modifying my family to make wine after many generations. <laughs> did you consider doing something else for a while? Uh, See, man, I... If I think if I know was not making wine, uh, I was probably an uh, my dream of kids uh, was to be a ranger at national park. Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> With say with a like... big hat like this, uh, chasing <laughs> the horse, the bear. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, <laughs> absolutely. But I was gonna say like a hang glider or something, like a guy who does like some kind of uh, outdoor sports. See, see, you. But I when uh, my sister this is funny because. Uh, I always live in the country, in the bicycle around, in the vineyard, uh, uh, hunting uh, with a wild boar, uh, <laughs> a farmer kid, so, you know. Uh, my sister, the older sister, she was living in Torino, you uh, doing the university. And so sometimes uh, I was going there to see her, you know, to meet her. And 
I remember that Torino uh, was a big city, you know, houses and no garden, no nothing. I was staying in the house. Uh, at the time, there was no PSP or television or anything, you know. And so one time a day, my sister was like, uh, instead of going around to walk the dog, was walking me in the park. And I was running like the dog <laughs> because I need this open space. <laughs> so I always love the open space. And uh, this is the reason why I... The best part of my business is uh, I love the vineyard. I love uh, to to be in the vineyard, to be with the vine uh, is uh, the best uh, the best part. But why did you decide to go to, to wine school? I mean, what was the decision? I like I said, uh, I always helped uh, my father since I was kids. You know, when when I was sixteen, uh, seventeen, probably I was also going with the motorcycle away to chasing some girl. <laughs> I was escaping. You know, there was a uh, the other day, Ed McCarthy, the writer. Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, very funny. He, was, he chases the girls a lot. Ah, absolutely. No, <laughs> not for this. No, <laughs> no, Mary, no. She's going to kill us. <laughs> no. He, he one day he said to me, "Ah, oh, Luca, I still remember one time that uh, I had the Vespa motorcycle." You know, and uh, he said, "Oh, I remember when your father was screaming, asked for, looking for you to go to come in the vineyard in the winery to work, and." Uh, I heard the motorcycle going away. <laughs> and you say, now you are here making the wine. <laughs> no, I was natural. It was a natural thing, you know, for me. I, I liked it. I loved it. And, uh, but I was much more interested in the last in the chemistry. For sure, it's very important to know the reason why things happen and the reason why you don't want that shit happens <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but uh, I was always very interested, uh, you know, in the wine, the profile, uh, the testing wine uh, from different regions. Uh, I think uh, I had so many good friends uh, that I had the possibility to test uh, with them. Uh, so generous that they taste incredible wine from all around the world. And I think uh, if you try if you want to try to make a good wine, you need to add and drink a good wine before. Because, uh, you know, you cannot just drink Barolo, but you have to drink good wine from all around the world because uh, quality is uh, more large than your uh, home. You that's know? probably a change with your generation, right? I mean, that's probably... See, I think that was uh, the generation, my ge the generation also of, uh, you know, people like Saltare, uh, Scavino, uh, Sandrone, all these people, uh, Domenico Clerico, they were uh, probably the first generation that uh, they really uh, loved to drink other wine because it was very unusual as a person of the generation before, as my father, uh, that they were drinking not Barolo, you know, or they were drinking Burgundy or Bordeaux or Riesling or other wine, you know, very few people they did. I worked a little bit in France, in Burgundy, in Bordeaux, in a beautiful property. I worked in California. And then at a certain point, my father said, no, no, come home. It's time to real war. And... Uh, I was helping him, and uh, but he gave me, he said, uh, I remember from my life, okay, let's start to ruin your first wine, make the Barbera. <laughs> and uh, I did, you know. And uh, I really wanted to prove, because you feel a lot of responsibility. Feel, feeling today a responsibility for all this generation on my shoulder. And so I did for Barbera 
so many, see all what I know, all the experience that I took around the world, all what I learned on the book, all what uh, the history of the region was uh, trying to make uh, the best of Barbera as uh, possible. And I think uh, probably it was also the period where uh, Giacomo Bologna in Asti was making the Brico dell'Uccellone. Sure, late uh, 80s. Uh, yeah. uh, and um, so Barbera at the time was a, a good wine, but was not the top wine as it was in the 1800s. Why? Because already the best vineyard, they were used, the best exposure, at least, uh, they were used to make Barolo. Today, not even the, the best is the secondary exposure for Barbera. Today, since the price of the land is so crazy in Barolo, Barbera vineyards are, if you are lucky, outside of the Barolo region, or uh, really terrible exposure many times. <laughs> anyway, I did a lot of thinking and many experiments. I think one of the first experiments that I did I with was uh, aging on the lees, the wine with uh, Randall Graham. Uh, there was a crazy Randall uh, that uh, many times we talk, you know, about the aging on the lees. Uh, I think I remember one time he was so amazing person, so funny. Unfortunately, the last the years we don't see each other too much, but it was unbelievable. Many years he was knocking, arriving without notice, knocking the door and, uh, oh, I'm here. Oh, can I stay a few days here? Oh, porca miseria. So... Uh, one time we were discussing, you know, how the effect of the lees they were doing to the wine, uh, because I was uh, fascinated about uh, the champagne, you know, why the lees uh, in the bottle, they keep uh, so fresh, uh, the wine in the bottle, you know, the late released. And so I remember one time, and I was doing stirring lees on the red wine, that was very unusual, keeping the contact on the lees for months. And uh, one time he said, oh, we need to do in the body, we need to do the bed for the lease. We needed to create uh, some uh, floor uh, like an elevator in the casket. I said, Minkia Randall, you are really even more visionary than me. <laughs> and is it really more visionary? Did you know other people doing long lease contacts? I've heard that sometimes for Giacosa, long lease contact on reds. Uh, no, 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 no. Questo, beh, Giacosa was always very reserved a person. So I, I didn't hear at least from, uh, from him. Uh, I'm sure maybe he, he was doing. Uh, I experimented after, I was getting interested after a trip that I did in Champagne. And uh, I went to the cellar. It was again with Ed McCarthy and Mary Mulligan. They took me because uh, yeah, it was a, the only chance to go with a, a writer to go to this great uh, house. And we are uh, down in the, one time we are in the cellar of Bollinger and there was Monsieur Mongolfier. Monsieur Mongolfier oh, yeah. was the incredible the story. He, he was, uh, his great-grandfather was the inventor of the balloon, you know, I think so. He, oh, I didn't like, know that. Uh, he, he told me, he was, uh, they had paper, uh, a very famous house of uh, Mongolfier, something like with the, with the balloon in top. Uh, anyway, and we are in the cellar. We open uh, we, in the courtyard, open the door, we go downstairs. Uh, you know, I was young, waymaker, and I didn't know anything. I know that. Champagne at the bubble, uh, that's all. Uh, so I go in the cellar and he was talking about uh, uh, RD uh, wine. Uh, and there was uh, this pile of uh, bottle. I think it was uh, something uh, uh, that was the early 90s uh, uh, when I was there. And I think it was uh, something from 70 because at the time RD was uh, 
more than 10 years, I think so, if I remember well. Bollinger RD. The, See, the, Bollinger RD. Yes. The late release on the lease. Right? Exactly, where they keep on the lease for a long, long time, and then they do late the Gorgeman. And uh, he said to, ah, these are we, 10 years, let's say, 10 years on the lease. And I said, ah, interesting. He's, uh, but how a white wine can age so long, you know? And he looked at me and said, oh, young Italian, you don't trust me. Uh, you know, I know that sometimes, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the bullshit. Uh, and I said, okay. I remember uh, there was a, my mother was with me. She wanted to kill me, you know, when I said that. So he, he took a dirty glass in the cellar that was there uh, and he washed it on the hose. And uh, he took uh, one uh, metal key and he took one bottle from that pile and uh, he, pack, he sabered it, sabered there yeah. in the cellar. And he gave me a glass, say, taste it. Then you tell me what you what you look like. Thank you. It was fantastic. <laughs> it was incredible. It was a fun. And really, I started to turn in my mind a light. I said, why? How is it possible? And then I started with a million of questions to him. Why? Is the lease? What the lease do to the wine? How is it possible that they can keep so fresh a white wine like this? Blah, blah, blah. And then uh, I went home and I experimented on the Barber. And uh, it was one uh, funny, funny... What was the results of that? It was very, very interesting because I think uh, Lisa in the wine, and now I do in all the wine, we do also in the Nebbiolo, uh, the long, long contact of the Lisa. But it's different for each crew, right? Like the timing? See, see, see. We, some of them, uh, like Ravera, they stay 18 months on uh, without racking uh, or rocket sometimes 12 months De- depends when is uh, we do not have a timeline when the wine uh, needs to be racked we rack but uh, some of them they stay two years on the lease without racking from the malolati uh, i think lease uh, they released to the wine a lot of things first of all is a great uh, regulator the wine because they absorb as an sponge some defect of the wine they keep the wine reduces so protected by the oxygen when in the skin of the east there are some glucoside radicals uh, i don't know exactly that they give to the wine body structure think about uh, maybe a white wine barrel fermenter and white wine stainless steel fermenter if you separate the oak the mouth feeling is different you know and then plus, uh, I think they give a lot of things. For example, I am uh, intolerant to the sulfur. I always made me headache. So the goal of my life, I was always trying to make wine with much less sulfur as possible. You're saying you drink too much. That's what you're saying. <laughs> you get too many headaches from, no, from say, the sulfur. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Let's say this is an excuse to say that I cannot drink cheap wine. You know? yeah, right, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, I get the worst headaches. Or camiseria. <laughs> No, and uh, so also they they release a very strong radical antioxidants that are uh, uh, they help the wine to to preserve. Uh, uh, so was that was. So you're doing less sulfur additions because it was in reduction. See, absolutely. We work. I work. I like to work in reduction, and more and more, I think the best result that I had in the recent wine was really working in reduction, keeping the wine uh, stinky. <laughs> after the malolactic we the co2 of the malolactic and as long as possible so the wine goes from uh, onion uh, salami skin uh, dirty socks uh, gorgonzola <laughs> all the terrible things that you can imagine and then he start to open and open and open and but also 
there is a CO2, you know, that protect uh, from the oxygen. And then uh, after a little bit, uh, is, uh, the, one, the fruit becomes very crunchy, the tannin, fantastic. You know, think about when you go to taste the wine uh, in Burgundy from the barrel. They always, uh, when they sample, they always uh, have this uh, reductive thing. And these uh, Pinot Noir is, in one way, has many, some similarity to the Nebbiolo, you know. So are some more delicate wine that they need a little bit more reduction. And that was a real difference, right, between the Rivera that you made in 2000 and then the Rivera that you made in <sighs> 2010, because you took a 10-year break there, and then you changed up what you were doing, and it had to do with reduction, right? See, because I, I, I'm not a good winemaker, so it took me 10 years to figure out what to do with that vineyard. <laughs> no, this was one of the errors that I did. In, uh, I, I do error every day. Every day I do error, and uh, but uh, you know you learn from the error that you do, and you try to do better. But uh, it was uh, that time uh, we re- uh, recently bought uh, Vigna Ravera. Ravera we bought in '94, if I remember well, '95 in Novello. But Ravera is very, very large uh, appellation. Is uh, next to Cogno. Is uh, this beautiful po- Ravera? Has one side that in Barolo that face uh, one direction, and the other side that face completely the other direction, and. Uh, we bought uh, for the incredible price of uh, 50 million di lire alla acres. That means uh, 25,000 euro an acres <laughs> in 95, 94. <laughs> and uh, if you think that today the price of the vineyard is something as more than 1 million of euro for one acre, I think that it was good investment. Uh, these are five acres, uh, there are uh, something, uh, sono due ettari e mezzo, quindi proprio more. And then uh, I said, we said in the family, why we do not make a little bit more modern interpretation, you know, because it was this uh, moment, as I said before. And we did, you know, we made a little bit shorter fermentation, uh, more French oak, uh, and the wine that came more out... More modern style. Modern, modern style. Yeah. And the wine that came out was not really... Uh, shitty wine. It was good wine. This is the 2000. 99 and 2000. 2000 actually got from an important magazine very, very, very high score. <laughs> so it was 98. Uh, and uh, and really, it was good. I see drinking today is very, very good. Uh, but uh, for me, I never felt comfortable. For me, it was like, uh, I always say this stupid analogy that, uh, you know, when you See in the store these beautiful shoes, handmade, shining, leather, very fancy. And then you say, parca miseria, cazzo, I, I wanted to have, you know. And then you buy, very expensive maybe, and then you put in your shoes and you say, oh my God, I, they hurt you. And you don't feel comfortable, you know, don't feel your shoes, you know. I like it to have uh, shoes. Uh, I, my shoes, I throw away when they have the holes because for me, it's a part of a life, you know, the shoes. Uh, so I never felt comfortable. So in 2001, uh, I said to the family, no more Ravera. And everybody was mad with me, all the importer, uh, distributor. They said, you're stupid, you know, everybody wants to have the Ravera. Why you stop? Uh, you know, uh, I, I didn't like them. I didn't feel, no, like them. I didn't comfortable, you know? And so I, I stopped and I went to many series of experiments. So I went completely the opposite side. Uh, more I, traditional. More traditional. Long maceration, long skin contact uh, with maceration. 
And then uh, I started uh, to do some experiment uh, with the lease that I was doing to do malolactic in large cask, <clears throat> doing the malolactic when the malolactic won't happen. So that sounds a lot like you were trying to get something more than fruit. See, you know, it was uh, because uh, one of, uh, well, this later, but I think one of the, uh, was like um, my grandfather was already doing like this. My father was saying that the old way was like this. So I said, let's try to do this. On the lease, historically. On, on the lease. No, the thing is this, because uh, they were put in cask, and then the wine, they were working in the vineyard. They didn't have time to, to spend, uh, to do a lot of racking. Then uh, another funny story that uh, I understood. that was uh, I, When I worked uh, in Bordeaux, I was working in Mouton Rochild as an intern. I worked for one year there. Uh, the best barrel, the barrel that they used to give the sample, because... Uh, when the critics and the journalists came by, <laughs> yeah, sure. Like this. Uh, they were uh, the barrel that uh, they collected the lease. Because probably, you know, like I said, these lease, uh, they had to do more racking at the end, and then these lease, they release to the wine, was more immediate, you know, more probably, more, uh, more ready, you know. They were giving Had more complexity. More complexity. I so this thing, uh, other thing, then I started to keep the wine on the malolactic uh, for six months after. Then, you know, when the wine started to stink, uh, then, uh, uh, sorry for the expression, I say, we, when is a Grand Cru vineyard, so you start to shit in your pants, you are afraid to ruin the vineyard, so you rack the wine. Then, you know, friends also in Burgundy, they tell me, no, 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 look at what, no, you need to keep the wine there. You need. So the next year I did eight months, the year after I did... Uh, 12 months, 14 months, 18 months. So, you know, and you see this great evolution. And uh, one of the wines that inspired me was a Barolo that uh, dear friends gave me, we taste together this bottle, was the 1970 Mon Privato. Uh, that uh, I asked Mauro Mascara, then I heard that it was 100% of Cao Mauricio, that one. Uh, that was basically the first Cao Mauricio. Si, the per, all, si, yeah. si, I think si, he, he, he didn't and, uh, label it that way, but it was... Uh, you label uh, Mon Privat. And I think if you can find it in the market, you must buy because that wine is crazy. 70 was uh, good vintages, was not great vintages. Man, when I tried it, uh, it was fantastic, incredible. And so I call, I ask Mauro Mascarello, and then I researched what he was doing. He was doing like this, you know, he's traditionally keep the wine in cask for a long time uh, on the lease, uh, so I said, okay, maybe I'm the direction that I took uh, uh, is not uh, wrong. Yeah. Anyway, in the wine industry, nothing has to be invented. Everything is already invented. Maybe today we know the reason why shit happens in the past and we can prevent, but everything is already invented. What, what you can invent? There is a, is the experience, you know, maybe there are some techniques they get forgotten for some year, then they bring back, they come back. So many wine now I work in a reduction. So it took me 10 years, and the next release was the 2010. 2000 and 2010. Uh, the, of the Rivera. Of the Rivera. And how is that aging? What are you? I think it's aging uh, beautiful. It's very severe wine, because also if you taste an example, the 2012, uh, that is a vintage. Uh, uh, do not have obligation of marketing bullshit, but it's a vintage that personally I like a lot because I think it is going the same track as 08, 010, this more Burgundian style, more elegant, finesse. 
But of all the crew that we have, uh, the 12, is uh, the more monolithic in this moment. You know, it takes time. But uh, it's not monolithic in terms of harsh tanning, green tanning. It's just square. He has uh, what I like very much, uh, and I was tasting the other day, is that uh, when you taste, uh, it leaves uh, in your mouth, in your tongue, a little bit of a uh, sensation of uh, this uh, dark chocolate. You know, I love uh, the bitterness, but not the bitterness of the green tanning. When I, I press the cask during the fermentation, when I decide to finish the maceration, the tanning, they go up, become green and green and green and green. Then they start to polymerize and get together. At a certain point, we don't know when, we don't know why. They get together and they become more round, more softer. And then at a certain point, they become more uh, as a chestnut uh, like uh, the chestnut uh, fruit, you know, the one uh, under the sugar, the candy of chestnut. And then uh, they give, they arrive until uh, to have a little bit more of this uh, darker, not very dry, not very bitter, but dark chocolate sensation. And it means that the tannins are fantastically very ripe, you know. I think this uh, happens uh, more for uh, during the fermentation. And then uh, after, because the influence on the leaves, on the tannin, I think uh, we know probably the 20, 30% of the benefit today of the lease in the wine. Probably next generation, uh, they will know why Ravera was doing well or why, uh, you know, more. Uh, see, absolutely. And very ripe, good ripe timing. For me, it's like a, a big muffin, a big panettone. Panettone yeah. is like a big muffin with a lot of tanning. The top is like a lot of tanning, but very round. And this, for me, is a signature of uh, for longer age. Because sometimes when I taste the Vietti, I'm more thinking about Barolo, but, you know, a Nebbiolo from Vietti, sometimes I get a like a country bread, like a taste of bread, a hint of this. See, see probably this is uh, some of the factor of uh, the lease uh, period uh, that they stay. Absolutely, because, you know, it's a lease. If you, they stay in the wine, something uh, they leave to the wine. So do you think that when you have a wine like that, when you have that as a style of production, that it's helpful to decant the wine? In terms of decanting the wine uh, like this, uh, I went into a different stages <laughs> in Barolo. Honestly, I think uh, younger Barolo, you should decant and you should give a lot of air. Probably the middle stage of Barolo not, doesn't need. Then uh, the old Barolo, many times uh, we think uh, that... Uh, the old wine, and absolutely all the old wine of the world, uh, uh, do not like a lot of air. And we are talking about uh, 50, 60. Uh, Barolo, probably different than many other wines, when it's very, very old, has uh, some component that they oxidize. And it's like uh, una coperta, like uh, one uh, blanket that it cover the beautiness of the wine. So if you leave in the glass, or you decant without shaking you know, the wine, but decanting... And uh, so this uh, more volatile uh, blanket goes away, the wine becomes uh, back uh, to life or give us uh, some very good sink uh, that uh, this blanket was covering. So I think, uh, uh, see, honestly, then one thing, I, in the last few years, I always, uh, first of all, try not to have uh, a style. I, for me, having a winery style uh, is a 
something that I do not like because I try to see vineyard. I want I love terroir. For me, it will be too arrogant to have a style, you know. So Rocche, I try to do in more some way. Brunate, I think uh, through the history and experience that we have, uh, we do maybe differently. Well, they taste different. From, I mean, uh, I'll say. You certo. Know. Uh, the, in the last few years, the last 10 years, when uh, you become more mature, uh, I think in this, this is part of the life of everybody. When you are young, you wanted to prove. You wanted to show the world that you are able to take the heritage of a very important family. And so you, you want to show, you know, you, do, you show the big muscles. Ah, this. Uh, then uh, you arrive at a certain point uh, that uh, you... No, I don't want it to be feel as arrogant, but not uh, absolutely not on the arrogant side. Uh, but you, you arrive at a point and say, Cazzo, yes, something of good... Uh, i did it. <laughs> so, really, I do not have to prove uh, that uh, anything, because anyway, I need to prove that my terroir is good, not that I am a good winemaker. And then you arrive at a certain point that you have a different vision, because uh, you start to think, to say, well, I wanted to really now prove the future generation and the generation after my nephew, probably, that I was... a. Uh, Good winemaker. So I wanted to make wine that live as long as possible. And here really is the, like a Barolo. Barolo is wine made for long aging. So I really, honestly, zero interest, zero interest on uh, uh, immediate consumption in Barolo. And uh, I don't care. For me, uh, if people, they do not like uh, a young uh, Barolo, uh, you know, don't drink a young uh, traditional Barolo. It will be too bad to drink a younger barrel. And uh, for me, is uh, when you arrive uh, to close to a certain age, uh, you try to live uh, to survive. And so we will die uh, one day or the other, I hope in uh, other uh, hundred years. <laughs> But uh, we hope that part of us will survive longer than us uh, and will be the wine. So you actually make several Barbera. You make the Scaroni. You make the Vigna Vecchia Scaroni, which you already explained was planted by your family before you got there. Then you replanted Nebbiolo to Barbera and Scaroni. And then you make a, a La Crena. La Crena, yes. Which is a different Barbera. See, it's from uh, Asti. That is uh, because uh, one of uh, the stupid things that I did, uh, it was not stupid, but uh, the thing that you do when you are younger, brave, and a little bit stupid, but I wanted to uh, prove my family that I was able to to make the best Barbera as possible. I basically, we basically replant a vineyard of Barolo next to the Vigna Vecchia of Barbera because uh, I asked to my father to have more land available for Barbera. And then... Because uh, he only let you make Barbera and you <laughs> wanted to make more of it. See, no, I, you know, with the experience of Vigna Vecchia, I said, Vecchia, This is fucking good Barbera. Uh, we need, uh, uh, so, it's is, is like a chef. You know, a great chef can make a great meal with the ingredients, with the best ingredients. My ingredients are the vineyard. I cannot make a good Barbera from a secondary vineyard, you know, from a shitty vineyard. You will may always make a second wine. Uh, so, I said, why we do not uh, uh, plant more Barbera there, where is the Barolo vineyard? And... Uh, My father, no, no, it's not possible. We already have Vigna Vecchia, uh, you know, uh, keep that. 
And then I tried, tried at a certain point, uh, my father said, okay, let's, uh, I'm sure that he probably knows that what I wanted to do. Because I never asked them, but probably this one thing that I would like to ask them. I wanted to ask, I never asked them. And, I, and he said, okay, there is this old vineyard of Barolo with not appropriated clones. <clears throat> and he said, uh, replant uh, this vineyard with appropriate clones of Nebbiolo for Barolo. Uh, I ordered uh, by error uh, Barbera. At the time, there were no Wait, hold uh, on, email. No. Uh, there were uh, fax. <laughs> you did it on purpose or you made a mistake? <laughs> no, no, I did it on purpose. I really, I did it. Uh, because... Uh, I wanted to, I said, Katza, uh, if I am able to, you don't recognize immediately that it's Barbera because first leaves, you don't see, it takes one year, one year and a half. I said, maybe we are closer to the you second thought he year. You wouldn't notice. And we don't notice. I will be able to make the first uh, uh, vinification and there will be a good wine. So maybe I will be rescued. But Katza, that was a, a big piece of Barolo vineyard that I planted as Barbera. And... Uh, uh, I planted it. Then when, after one year and a half, too early, unfortunately, some neighbor, the uh, farmer there, and they asked my father, they said, hey, why, you know that you have some Barbera planted in the Grand Cru Barolo there in this Carolina? And my father went there and he started to say all the bad words that he knows. Ah. Then he called the nursery and he said, well, what the fuck you gave me there? <laughs> the Barbera vines instead of the Biolo. And uh, he... The nursery guy said, no, well, your son ordered. I have here the fax, the confirmation fax, you know. Uh, Parka, it was huge trouble, huge trouble. What happened there? It happened that uh, my father was very intelligent. He understood that I did this uh, for quality, not to uh, make the stupid thing. And you, I think you liked it was the Vigna Vecchia and you thought you could make more. Yes. Like and uh, I, I think uh, he had to show to me that he was mad with me. <laughs> but I think in his heart, uh, he was uh, happy because I think uh, he probably said, okay, this guy got it, you know, the quality, the idea of doing great wine. And thanks God, I have to say, the first uh, Barbera that they came out uh, from this vineyard, uh, they were very, very well received. I have to thank uh, Matt Kramer that he did incredible uh, review on the Barbera. Uh, Robert Parker, uh, he, two years ago, he remembered me that the first Barbera that he tried, uh, he, he loved that Barbera. And it was very important for small kids, uh, you know, to have uh, some big uh, welcome, you know, from very important. And for this reason, you're still alive. And for this reason, I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> could have gone bad. Minkia, <laughs> really, absolutely. No, uh, and... Uh, Ed McCarthy's at the cellar saying, whatever happened to Luca? Oh, well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's gone. <laughs> no, there was a incredible thing. And... Unfortunately, today there are not too many good uh, Barbera. I'm a little bit afraid for the Barbera because uh, he had a moment that he had a new life because many more, more people they were planting in the Barolo region Barbera. Uh, and then uh, today is much, much less. Many wineries are really taking again, uh, uh, giving place to more Nebbiolo. Why? Because the land is so expensive. You know, also if you buy one acre of land for one 1.2, 1.5 million of uh, euro. You are not going to plant Barbera. You plant Nebbiolo, you know. And so this is the reason why also we went in Asti. 
region of Lacrena because uh, uh, Lac Asti uh, is a there are part of Asti that production of Barbera in Asti is huge very they, very very they very can't big. make Barolo there no no and for this reason the most important spot the most the best uh, position best vineyard used for Barbera and uh, we were looking for long 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 time uh, property but we never found anything good then uh, one day, uh, one mediator, a dealer of land uh, that he took us around one time and he, he showed many pieces, you know, and uh, I asked him, show us uh, the best exposure. And he showed us many positions. And one of these uh, was in Agliano. It was uh, a vineyard owned by a winery called Trinquero. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> nasty, yeah. And uh, he had these eight hectares. And uh, that alpha was planted in 1932. And uh, where from this vineyard, uh, this guy was also a consultant, was his wine consultant. He said, you know, from this vineyard, very old vine, uh, Trinquero make Vigna del Noce. That in the 80s uh, was probably one of the most important uh, Barbera and still today very, very good, uh, the name. And so, ah, cazzo, I wanted that piece of land. He said, no, it's owned by this winery, so it's impossible to, to buy. And then uh, one day... He called me and he said, look, you know, I need to come uh, tomorrow because maybe there is a good surprise. So we go to the house of uh, this uh, Trinquero and he had a son and a daughter. And I think the daughter married uh, the son of Guido from uh, the restaurant. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, da Guido. Uh, see, see. Yeah, yeah, that's a good restaurant. Uh, she and, probably uh, eats well. <laughs> and the son uh, wanted to continue the winery. And so probably the good father uh, said, okay, I wanted to give some money to the daughter and keep the winery and vineyard for the son. And so he decided to sell the property not next to the winery. And that was the most fastest uh, purchase that I did uh, in my life uh, because uh, we went there and we sit on this long table. At the end of the table, there is this trinquero man, old farmer uh, and a uh, fantastic person. And uh, he said to me, oh, okay, you are, uh, say, what do you want to do? I said, we would like to, I know that this vineyard is for sale. And he said, uh, ah, okay, but uh, my land is expensive. I said, okay, he's a... Uh, so, and he said the price. The price was much cheaper than any Barbera or can imagine. You know, was I don't remember. Was very cheap coming from Barolo region. And he expected probably that we were make a say, deal. You know, yeah, argue down, argue down. You know, yeah. and then it's okay. And I opened the check and I brought the check and I gave to him. And he looked the check. And we bought him a few years later. I saw him, like a, he was older man, and he was a big room during the testing. And he said to me, oh, Luca, vaffanculo. <laughs> so I say in Italian, don't translate. Vaffanculo. You know, I had to ask you more money for that vineyard. <laughs> he said, oh, sorry. <laughs> Pardon. <laughs> and, but for me, it was fantastic because it was a, Half of that vineyard planted in 1932-1935. So immediately you could make a fantastic wine. And La Crena still today make, made from this very old vine. And uh, another piece to be planted, so we could plant the, our muscle selection from Vigna Vecchia, clones that we did. Uh, and there was another piece planted in 71. So let's say it was fantastic because we could make a, a Trevigne Barbera from the three location, the three age, and the crew 
from uh, the old vine. And uh, I still think uh, that uh, La Crena, for me, is one of our more under, uh, uh, under the radar wine that I make because uh, I love La Crena. And uh, it's a wine that age extraordinary, you know, very well. I think uh, I always open a, a bottle of the 90s to, for my guests in the cellar to show how is it because uh, also in the old time the Barbera was wine made for aging you know for uh, if you had the baby born in the family the farmer they were selling the Barolo and they were uh, putting aside of the vintage of the kids uh, some uh, good Barbera as the style of Scarone and uh, La Crena. What's the difference between handling Barbera and handling Nebbiolo? What have you learned over the years? In the vineyard, uh, the main difference uh, is this, that uh, first of all, I think Barbera like uh, when the vintage is a little bit more warmer than uh, Nebbiolo. Nebbiolo likes more fresh. But Nebbiolo, as the Pinot Noir, doesn't like uh, very much the heat. Not talking about the heat, but a little bit more warmer vintage. Also because berries of a Barbera are... Uh, big cluster the barbera you know so you have to do a lot of green harvest uh, and then if it's humid the barbera is very vigorous vine very is one of more vigorous uh, variety that we have so they suck a, a lot of water from the soil the berries they become very big uh, diluted uh, so it's difficult to handle you have to do green harvest 10 times and then you never enough you have to do bleeding in the winery during the vinification uh, so Barolo, Nebbiolo is different because it has uh, the smaller berries, uh, so it's not so vigorous uh, variety. So really the work in the vineyard are very, 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 very different, you know, in, uh, from Barbera and uh, Nebbiolo. An example, Nebbiolo, you want to leave long cane to the, you want it to have many solar panels, leaves, you know, for your Nebbiolo. And also Nebbiolo needs to have many, many shoots. Barbera, Half we give, uh, you leave less canes, you know, less uh, shoot. With Nebbiolo, you want to, when you prune, when you have the bourgeon in Francais, uh, the gemme in Italiano, you want to leave more. In the years ago, I used to make uh, much more green harvest. Now I make, uh, I do the green harvest in, in many more times. Instead of doing one time, I do sometimes three, four, five times because... Uh, with the severe, uh, strange weather that we have, you never know, because uh, you can have a beautiful July uh, in a hot uh, August or so-so July and very raining August. So you, you cannot uh, see in July, imagine how the harvest is going to be. So you need to be very quiet, you know, you need to be very cautious to do everything. So, and then I leave a little bit more grape than what I was doing before, because... Uh, some years ago, I was even uh, over uh, lower yield. Uh, it was too low. Too, too low. Too low. And then when it's too low, you cannot do anything when the grape arrives in the cellar. So I prefer to have a little bit more. And then when I crush the grape, I can decide immediately if I do some bleeding or not. So I can adjust in the cellar. So you have anyway more skin for the juice that you have. And in Barbera, we do a lot of bleeding. Because big berries means a lot of water inside, less skin. We do a lot of uh, rosé. 
We produce every year a lot of rosé. I didn't know that. Eh, certo. Me, io... Does that ever leave the winery? No, no we, oh, sell, okay. we sell by bulk uh, to other winery, but uh, <laughs> it's good, good rosé. <laughs> sometimes we make uh, for the one barrel for the family for the summertime, but it's not. We, we sell it to other winery. And uh, in terms of maceration, Barbera doesn't require long, long contact with the skin. Likes uh, to do as the Nebbiolo, even more than the Nebbiolo, cold stock maceration, so maceration at low temperature before to start the fermentation, uh, but doesn't like uh, to go long, long time uh, on the skin because uh, every time that he stay on the skin a long time, uh, he become a little bit more rustic, the Barbera, mainly in Asti. So let's say 15 days, not, not long. Then a Barbera is very difficult wine because very difficult wine to make him dry because uh, many times uh, you know you have uh, not don't finish the fermentation and it is much more easy to be attacked by bretanomyces uh, think that because uh, the acidity is lower is that why? no really no i don't i think really for the vegetation because uh, bretanomyces for me they live in nature for sure the wine with lower acidity and high ph you know, the Bretanomyces, they are, they make a party. But uh, I think, uh, and I had an experience, that some vineyard of Barbera that I had, that I keep uh, more, uh, you know, we do not use herbicide or pesticide. So anyway, sometimes you have a grass growing in the vineyard. Uh, so the part a little bit more humid. And so the vegetation is of Barbera is very opulent. From that vineyard, statistically, we have more problem of breath. From that vineyard because probably brat that they live in the vineyard they like the, they, they are on the skin of the grape because the yeast are on the skin of the grape uh, they like this vineyard more fresh more uh, rustic more uh, with great vegetation huh. so it's quite different they think plus uh, the aging uh, yeah, probably Barbera is, uh, is the one that needs in the youngest stage a little bit more oxygen, you know, so maybe some malolactic in small barrel, not new oak, but in small barrel to give more oxygen, they take a good benefit. And then the second part in the large cask of uh, big bot. So if the skins are different for Barbera, does that mean it's more sensitive to rot? Sì, porca miseria, because the... Barbera is a variety that one day his grape is fantastic, the next day is botrytis. Because uh, it's very strange, the, the skin of Barbera degrades during the maturation of the grape very fast. You are having a moment where when you touch the grape with your uh, finger, the skin goes away, you know? And so you need to be very careful during mainly the harvest that are very fresh or very humid because it's easy to get uh, botrytis. And also, let's say, if Nebbiolo, an example, you know, sometimes we got a hail. A vineyard of Nebbiolo, you can clean the berries, you can take away the bad berries and these, uh, and sometimes you do not feel too much the hail. In Barbera, you can do whatever. And uh, if uh, you have the vineyard with mold and hail, uh, you cannot do anything. It's better. I learned the lesson that I said, I spent too much time and too much uh, nervoso. Uh, may, made me mad many times that anyway, when I have uh, vintages like this, uh, 
He's a... Uh, you already know. You already know. And what about the Perbaco Nebbiolo? I feel like that's gotten some acclaim. That is, uh, was uh, something that uh, exploded in our hands. Uh, <laughs> it was a wine, a very... So, years ago, my family was able to collect a really an incredible series of very good vineyards. You know, the vineyard that, you know, I hope very soon we will be able with the consortium to arrive at this uh, classification of a vineyard, you know, to extract 20, one crew, as uh, really we need to do. Already many writers, they did their classification and it's the same, you know. We, we know Brunate, that is Brunate, uh, Canubi, that is good Canubi, or Cerecchi, of Rocche, and so on. We just needed an official classification. And we, we have many of these. And my father was making, you know, one Reserva de Villero, not made every year. We only made in some specific vintages. Uh, traditionally, was making Rocca Brunate and Lazzarito. Then we had the Ravera. But then we had uh, many other uh, very good vineyards of uh, Barolo. Bricco Boschis, Bricco del Fiasco, Vineyard in Bussia, in Ginestra, in Le Coste Le Liste, Fossati, Bricco Viole, Rocchette Vino. Uh, so very important wine that are a flagship wine for many wineries. I forgot some, for sure. In the past, my father, after making the crew, he was uh, blending all the other to make uh, the Barolo Castiglione. Years ago, I said, how I can do better? How I can improve this? Because it was really difficult. Because, uh, for sure, Barolo and Barbaresco of my parents, among uh, Giacosa, Conterno, Rinaldi, Mascarello, they were already very important wine, very recognized, very good Barolo. And uh, so I started to make the vinification of all these uh, very important vineyards separately, aging separately. And in the bottom floor, my cellar, if you remember where there are all these big botti, this large cask, Slavonia Noc, every cask is a different uh, Grand Cru, uh, Bussia, uh, 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 Brico del Fiasco, Brico Boschis, uh, Rocchette Vino, and so on. After three years of uh, aging, we select, instead to blend, like my father was doing, doing blind testing, we select uh, of these uh, 11 great personality vineyards, cask, the five, the six, the four, depends from the year. Not necessarily the best one. Eh? The one that they get together better. The one that they, they feel comfortable together better. And we blend uh, to make the Castiglione because my idea was uh, to try to make the Castiglione the highest level as possible because today Cru Barolo are becoming crazy. There is a lot of speculation on Barolo as Burgundy, as not Cordiron. Far East market is becoming crazy, you know. I estimate that 20% of my Barolo crew that I ship in the state go back to Asia because I always see my American label in the Asian market. You know, is something that Burgundy producer they already face since many years, and I think is it will happen uh, if it's not just happening for Barolo. So I needed a very important Barolo Castiglione, and so I had the tools to do these many many good players. Uh, let's say I'm a, like a friend of mine said that I am like a, a coach. Uh, that has a team of basketball that uh, with 11 top, uh, very famous, uh, very good uh, paid uh, players. And for that game, you need to choose uh, five uh, to play, you know. And uh, 
So this is the, the, the thing that I do. And my goal was to make the Castiglione the constant year after year to elevate. And I arrived there. I, I think uh, Castiglione did incredible jump in the quality in the last years. Then I had this four, five, six cask of Barolo left. And then for many years, we've been tempted. Uh, at the beginning, actually, I was tempted to say, okay, what uh, I do? I make a regular Barolo or what we make? Uh, and then uh, we decided in the family not to make a regular Barolo because we didn't want it to be confused uh, as a commercial wine. You know, we, do, we don't want to, we try to be different. You know, in every business, there is something that you want to do and something that you don't want to do. You feel that you don't like to do. And so I decided, we decided to battle as a Langenebiolo, like the Rosso, different style than many Langenebiolo, because many Langenebiolo, unfortunately, are uh, the Biolo vineyard planted outside of the Barolo region or Young Vine or, and blended with shitty Merlot Cabernet and other things. That, uh, this is different. So I just uh, blended after the battling, like I did in 2013, uh, one month ago. And uh, instead to call Barolo, I call Langenebiolo. And then I went the first time uh, to my mother with a glass of this wine. And I said, oh, mama, let's try our first Langenebiolo. And she thought uh, that, uh, you know, was a secondary vineyard. She was not aware there was a selection of cask at the third year of a good Barolo. Uh, and she, when she tasted it, she said, oh, perbacco. Perbacco is very old Italian, gentle expression that means, uh, wow, I could, I would say, oh, porca miseria or minchia, but I, you know, I couldn't put minchia on the label <laughs> of porca miseria. So I said, okay, let, this is a great name to put on the bottom. And honestly, I didn't expect uh, all this uh, success uh, on the Perbacco because uh, it really it became, uh, you know, a great introduction to the people for the people, for Barolo. Many, many, many sommeliers, they started to use uh, as an uh, introduction, you know, to the Barolo, because Barolo, as the Pinot Noir uh, from Burgundy, are not easy wine. Many people, they pretend to know and to understand because Barolo is fancy, Pinot Noir is sexy, you know, but they are difficult wine, and wine that you need skill, you need training. And I think uh, in every world, I think there are many perbacco around the world. So wine that they can help uh, the customer to grow in their appreciation and to understand uh, without spending a fortune uh, to a big commitment to understand what Barolo is it. Then maybe in the future, if they like a Barolo, they will buy other wine. So it really became a wine that uh, I helped me. First of all, uh, I have my, even in this wine, I have much more demand than our production. And, you know, we don't want to make more because then you have to start to compromise and then I want to make some bottle of Barolo Castiglione, you know. Uh, sometimes we need to pay our bill too. But uh, he did incredible service uh, for my family because, uh, like I said before, many people, they know Vietti for the history, all the winery, good wine. But uh, not everybody that can afford a bottle of uh, Rocche, Villero, Brunate, Lazzarito, because are not, unfortunately, cheap wine. And uh, so... I think Perbacco was fantastic because really in a normal base, in a regular base, let understand to the people how serious we were. So how do you envision changes coming up in the future for your winery in the next five years, ten years? I, 
Uh, we try every year to buy a piece of land more uh, to have uh, maybe possible another crew, but uh, it's very difficult because the price of the land are very expensive. I think uh, in one way uh, we are focusing even more I, on the Castiglione. I think Castiglione is a wine that I wanted to bring even to another step, maybe adding some very good crew there inside. Perbacco, I think uh, in the last year, we are experimenting some very good vineyards of Barbaresco, a very good crew, but I don't want to battle until I'm sure they are fantastic. So I do all the best that I can. And then uh, I, uh, the third year uh, I put on the Perbacco and then we will see in four, five, six, seven years uh, to do. So I think you have a few battles more of Perbacco, but coming from a current crew Barbaresco. Uh, and then uh, something different, something funny. I, I have some uh, small experiment uh, to do in the cellar of uh, different uh, wine that my father was making in the past. Uh, then I stopped to make. Uh, we, this year we want to make a uh, Fraser uh, refermented in the bottle, like in the old, my father oh, was okay. making, and it was very fun. But three bottles, uh, just for fun. And then uh, uh, I have a small... Uh, experiment from an old, old uh, variety in Piemonte that uh, but I, you should try before that I tell you because then uh, I don't want to make a mistake. It was a, a region that uh, in the 1700s was a larger planting there than uh, uh, Barolo region. And then it almost disappeared. And uh, where the origin of Nebbiolo was. And so I'm we are doing some experiment to see if we are able to, but this is for fun because I think uh, you, you need to do something fun, you know, uh, if not, it become boring, you know, too serious, you know, wine is a serious thing, but when you take out the cork, it's party. And also you have to take also the thing more easy, you know, more, uh, because if you hold too much pressure on your shoulder, uh, you know, you're going to explode, you know? And so I, I always felt in my life that I always had too much pressure in my shoulder for the history of the family and this and that. So I think in this moment, I, I, I have the luxury to do some wine as I want, as the vineyard wants, without to prove anything to anybody. And so it's big relief for me. And this is, uh, I think, uh, I'm more happy now than what it was uh, 10 years ago, that I was younger. <laughs> Luca Carrado sees himself as a coach of Barolo in pursuit of pleasure. Thank you very much for being here today. Grazie mille. Thank you. Luca Carrado Vietti of Vietti in Castiglione in the Barolo Zone. Thank you. Ciao, grazie. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. 
and thank you for listening.